Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson with my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. Well, it's one of the iconic images in American history, Babe Ruth, in the fifth inning, game three of the 1932 World Series at Wrigley Field in Chicago. He pointed to center field and called his shot. Then he did what he predicted and smacked a monstrous home run into the deepest part of the park. It entered the popular mind because honestly, who the heck steps out on the field and tells you exactly what they're going to do, especially when what they're planning is so outlandish and improbable? Well, today, the answer to that question is Donald Trump. He and his followers have very much been calling their shot, projecting their outrageous plans for Trump's return to power and showing the world exactly what the future would hold. To see it, all you have to do is look. And that's what our guest today, Jonathan Rausch, has done. He's a senior fellow in the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution and the author of eight books and many articles on public policy, culture, and government. He's a contributing writer to The Atlantic and the recipient of the 2005 National Magazine Award. That's the magazine industry's equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. Yes, Paul and I are very intimidated to have Jonathan Rausch on the show. And on August 29th, he wrote an article for The Atlantic called Trump's Second Term Would Look Like This, which stayed on their top 10 most read list for much of the last two weeks. For good reason, it's truly scary stuff. But John, we're very happy to have you on the show. Well, I'd say I'm happy to be here. But the, of course, the subject matter is a little bit unhappy. I agree completely. And look, I'm not, not going to try to pin you down to this. But we'd like to have you onto the show at a later time because your writing does span much more than sort of the doomsday scenario for America. And when you have a happier topic to talk about, we'd love to have you back to talk about that. But today, unfortunately, we have to look ahead by looking at your article about what Donald Trump's second term would look like. Now, you start your article by writing, quote, a lot of people, including myself, have been warning that a second Trump term would bring about the extinction of American democracy. I have to say, I am one of those people. I, last October, wrote an article in Newsweek titled, Trump is going to be the nominee in 2024. Why aren't we panicking yet? And what I found in writing that was that making a case that people would find convincing that the stakes were that high is really hard. It's just, it's hard to get our minds wrapped around the idea that the country as we know it could fundamentally change in such a negative direction. And yet we've had this actual armed insurrection and the Trump forces have been, as you say, calling their shot. So is that why you sat down and wrote this piece to try to get people to wrap their minds around how real and concrete the danger is? Yeah, that's one reason. And here's another reason. I love your Babe Ruth analogy. Something that's true now that was not necessarily true, say, two years ago, is that the Trump and MAGA movements have told us what the plan is. We no longer have to speculate about how a second term looks. A combination of the actions that Trump took in the post-election period, the actions that we've seen unveiled by the January 6th committee, the behavior of the MAGA movement in state elections around the country, and now in primaries leading up to this fall's election, and then finally in the Mar-a-Lago incident, they basically have shown us what they will do. And in fact, have the things I mentioned in my article that they're going to do, they've done all but one of them already. So I wrote this article because we can now say, here's what we can expect. 
You know, it's 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 a little mind numbing. I mean, as humans, we our brains are programmed to stick with the status quo and getting us to change our thinking is is really, really challenging. I think that's some of what's going on here. We just can't we continually find ourselves saying we just can't believe this is really happening. It can't be happening in America now. Across the pond, of course, we have models. You devote the beginning of your piece to talking about Viktor Orban in Hungary as the model for what the Trump team wants to do and what it would look like. Could you talk to us a little bit about what that model is and why is it that what we'll call illiberal democracy is the course that you think things could, would follow here? Yeah, sure. With the preface of, of amplifying the point you just made, Paul, by saying that just generally waving our hands and, and pointing our fingers and jumping up and down about threats to democracy in abstract terms don't really cut it. And the hope of, of this article and this conversation is that by making clear the specific mechanisms, the exact devices that will be used, we can make this more concrete warn ourselves about what's likely to happen and how the, how the, the, the four years of a Trump second term would look. So I think the most important single thing to know is that since the 2020 election, the MAGA movement have told us who their model is, what they want to look like. And the name of that model is Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party in Hungary. Now, Orban has done two terms, two stints as prime minister of Hungary. And in the first, actually, he was a liberal reformer, surprisingly. But in the second, starting in 2010, he emerged as a kind of populist authoritarian machine politician. He didn't convert Hungary from being a democracy to being a dictatorship. But what he and his party did do is little by little in increments hollow out the institutions of democracy, doing things like they would buy out independent media and shut it down if it was critical. They would use government contracts in order to influence the media, win it over. If you weren't on the government side, you would lose these lucrative contracts. They were packing the courts with political hacks, hollowing out the independent judiciary, using populist rhetoric against Jews, uh, for example, and George Soros, and doing a whole series of things so that by now, Hungary is not a dictatorship, but it's not really a democracy either. The Fidesz party is deeply entrenched there for a long time. Well, that is the explicit model of the MAGA movement. Trump has praised it. The CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee, the big conference of conservatives actually brought in Orban to keynote, and he told them that we cannot fight using liberal means. We have to use illiberal means. He's an avatar, what he calls illiberal democracy. Tucker Carlson, the most influential commentator on the right, went to Hungary to do a week's worth of broadcasts fawning on Orban. So they're telling us that's the plan. They're going to hollow out our democratic institutions to entrench themselves in power. As you say, one of the things that you set out to do in the article is to, in very concrete terms, show what this would look like. And you provide your receipts, as the kids say online these days. You really you provide the links to show exactly where you're sourcing these ideas from. And you break it down into a hit list 
of a series of steps that you believe would happen, again, based on what Trump and his followers have themselves put forward. This is sort of a postcard from a hellish future. So your first step that you outline is install toadies in key positions. Why is that step one? Why is that so important for executing the Trump plan for a second term? Well, there are two step ones. They happen at the same time, and this is one of them. Trump understands that in his first term, he lost a lot of time by appointing people that he could not control. He was interested in prestige appointments, his generals, as he called them. It took him two or so years to understand that these people would defy his will and that what he in fact needed were people in key positions who would do whatever he told them, lawful or corrupt. Now, toward the end of his second term, he actually hired people who would go through the list of political appointees and try to call all the ones out who were not personally loyal. Well, we know that in his second term, he will not make the same quote unquote mistake of hiring independent minded qualified people for key posts. He'll go straight for people who he knows will be loyal to him and who will follow his orders. And he'll fill the government with those people. And those people will have four years in order to execute his will in agencies everywhere from Homeland Security to the Weather Service. So, John, in, in the first term, we saw a version of, of what you're talking about and how devastating it can be to have a political lackey at the head of an important executive agency. Take William Barr, for example. He was able to devastate, totally politicize the DOG in all kinds of ways, whitewash the Mueller report, set up the ridiculous independent counsel investigation to muddy the waters on the con conclusions of the Russia investigation to support Trump's narrative. He politicized criminal prosecutions of Trump allies like Flynn and Stone, fired the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, intervened to help Trump in investigations by the U.S. attorney for, the, for, the, for D.C. I mean, he abused federal emergency powers on the southern border and in the aggressive federal responses to civil protests. We could literally take the entire show to talk about the abuses visited on and by the DOJ under Bill Barr, and that's just one agency. In, in the face of that kind of record of abuse, which, which is just devastating, to our, our, our system of government, are you saying that in the second Trump term, it could actually be worse? Oh, sure. From Trump's point of view, Bill Barr was a failure because at the end of the day, the one thing that counted the most that Trump really wanted from his attorney general was to use the power of the Justice Department to overturn the election. The whole plan was for the DOJ to send letters to states in which the vote had been close, announcing that they were opening investigations and seizing voting machines. Bill Barr said no. The person that Trump will go for to head justice in his second term will be like the person that in the last minute of his first term, he tried to replace Bill Barr with. That's a man named Jeffrey Clark, a little known environmental lawyer who went behind the backs of the acting attorney general 
directly to Trump and the White House to develop this scheme of using DOJ in order to investigate and flip state election returns. And they were going to install him in DOJ. We're jumping ahead of ourselves. That was only forestalled by the threatened re resignation of the entire Justice Department. But that put us on notice, the type of appointee that we can expect in the second Trump term. I do want to return to the theme of the nexus of the Department of Justice, federal law enforcement, the courts, essentially the entire judiciary branch. Let's put a pin in that for a second because it becomes the subject of sort of the latter part of your uh, a bucket list for America, you know, sort of like before America kicks the bucket, this is what's going to happen. I just, let me just turn sequentially to the next thing that you point to in your article, because it is related to that first one. You have the prospect of toadies at the very top of the federal agencies, but also in the layer below those very top appointees, the names that make it into the press, you cover something that We've discussed in great detail on this show before. A couple of months ago, back in July, Jonathan Swan of Axios put out a detailed and really important investigative report where he found that sources close to President, former President Trump said that he would immediately reimpose his Schedule F executive order if he ever got back into the White House. And that would effectively upend the modern civil service by putting MAGA loyalists in tens of thousands of key positions that make policy. Now, a quick programming blurb here for regular listeners to Beyond Politics. You already heard our interview with U.S. Congressman Jerry Connolly on this show. He is the member of Congress who has put forward an amendment to try to put a stop to this maneuver. It's actually something that Majority Leader Steny Hoyer said is going to be voted on in the next couple of weeks. It's probably mostly a messaging bill because it has no prospect of passing the Senate. But Congressman Connolly was able to outline just how devastating this move would be. I urge people to go back and listen to the show for his perspective on that. But for people who haven't heard that discussion yet, I'd like to get your perspective. Why is this Schedule F maneuver so important, something we should be paying attention to? The career civil service referred to derogatorily by MAGA and its sympathizers as the deep state, career serv civil service is the backbone of government competence and integrity. These are the professionals who often serve for years. These are the experts who know where the bodies are buried, how to get things done. These are people with the professional codes who attend the conferences so that they know how to do things like predict the weather and write maritime law and patrol the parks. And these are the people who traditionally will, will tell a political appointee because they're not easy to fire. Look, Matt, um, let's. I understand what you're trying to do, but what you're proposing isn't legal or what you're proposing won't work. So let's look for other solutions. That's a critical role of government. Donald Trump and MAGA don't like it because they correctly perceive that the integrity of the civil service was a major obstacle to doing things that they wanted to do. Donald Trump decided to change a weather report, literally alter the weather forecast about the path of the hurricane. Scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration rejected that. They said the science is the science. 
political higher-ups went along with it, but career civil service said, uh-uh, you, this, that changes when Schedule F goes into effect. Trump did this. Toward the end of the second term, on his way out the door, they announced this new plan called Schedule F that would allow the White House to fire 30, 40, 50,000 of the top career civil servants. In effect, they become at-will employees of the White House. Biden comes in, he overturns it. Trump comes in literally on day one. I promise you that executive order will be on his desk on January 20th, 2025. And as of that moment, it will be much harder and much riskier for anyone in the government to push back against illegal and corrupt and incompetent orders to them. I just want to put in two very quick programming notes slash plugs. One is for something that we're not responsible for creating. It was a book by Michael Lewis. It was also a great audio book, by the way, there are excerpts called The Fifth Risk. And I just can't recommend it to our listeners and viewers more. Just, just read a summary of it if you don't think you have the stomach for the whole book. It's one of these Michael Lewis topics that doesn't sound fascinating at first, and I promise you it is. It is about the value of what the federal government buried down in these agencies does. If you're thinking that it's a deep state conspiracy to, I don't know what MAGA types think that they do that's so nefarious, think again. This is where there's a repository of data, information, economic value that the federal government creates that we all benefit from. And that the very first thing that Donald Trump did when he came into office was try to oversee these people, take out the layers that he could appoint politically and put in a bunch of grifters and hacks and people who had no idea what the heck was going on in their agencies before we got on the but air. But people who are good at politics. If you want an agriculture department that decides who gets farm loans based not on the law, but based exactly. on whether you're donating to the president, that's what you'll get. And social security benefits and veterans benefits. That was actually, by the way, John, you just went right to the other plug, which was that that's what Congressman Connolly was saying is, we don't, whatever you harbor out there in terms of your view of the deep state, I don't think anyone truly wants the decision on whether you get veterans benefits, social security benefits, the kinds of things that your tax dollars paid for on the basis of your political loyalties. We don't think that we should have a McCarthy-esque political oath before you get the benefits that you've earned under the laws of our, of our country. And that's the kind of risk that we're talking about. And the fifth risk that Michael Lewis was pointing to is the potential for a major meltdown in the kinds of mechanisms that the federal government maintains to keep us safe, to keep our, our drinking water and air and land safe, and to prevent us from be befalling disasters befalling us in the form of hurricanes and tornadoes and weather events. And so all of this stuff really, truly matters. You know, there's an interesting push-pull in Trump's first term between the country's military leadership and the president. Trump somewhat disturbingly referred to military leaders as, quote, my generals, and he wanted them to be, but they thankfully resisted and opposed his insanity. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper said on 60 Minutes, it's important to our country, it's important to the republic, the American people, that they understand what was going on in this very consequential period, the last year of the Trump administration, and to tell the story about things we, the military, really prevented, really bad things, dangerous things 
that could have taken the country in a dark direction. Mark, former Joint Chiefs Chairman, supported Esper in swatting down crazy Trump ideas like military strikes in Venezuela and Mexico, or shooting protesters, or blockading Cuba. Now, you believe that Trump has already projected in a second term he would install client generals who would not respect the supremacy of civilian leadership to the extent that they would keep the separation alive, and that those client generals would actually do Trump's bidding and do crazy stuff. Why do you think that? What what would it look like? Well, again, it would look like some of the people that he tried to promote at the end of his last term. He sees the military as an obstacle to what he wanted to do. And of course, it was some of the shocking revelations that you refer to, Paul, coming from General Milley, show this. Now, there are plenty of people in the military who are MAGA supporters, or at least MAGA compliant. And he will find them. He'll put them in positions of authority. I don't think we would see him sending, for example, the army to seize voting machines. But I do think we would see the politicization of the military, using it to do things like, for example, garish dictator-style military parades, sending it to the border to make arrests of immigrants, which is something he tried to do, for example, and other measures that basically turn the military into a campaign arm for Trump. Let me maybe pick up here on what we put in the parking lot a moment ago, which is the reference Paul made to the Department of Justice. Because you you do then devote the next portion of your, your hit list, Donald Trump's hit list on America, to this nexus, there's sort of three buckets that you delineate, politicizing the Department of Justice, weaponizing the pardon power of the president, and blowing off the courts and essentially Andrew Jacksoning them where they can come up with whatever decisions they want and let them try to enforce it because he's not going to. I kind of smush those together in my mind. I, I, I invite you by all means to kind of break them down more sequentially like you do in your article. But to me, it feels like part of one continuum of a doom loop, because what you lay out is a scenario where the DOJ and the FBI and national security agencies act with impunity under the direction of Trump loyalists, as you've already laid out. They know that they're free from any constraints because they have an explicit understanding that they'll get a federal pardon. So look, as long as they can steer clear of state legal action, then then they know that they can basically do what they want. And then finally, the sole remaining arbiter of what's allowed, the court system, is just told to go pound sand. And, and you actually lay out the frighteningly realistic possibility that the Roberts court, which is itself influenced by MAGA loyalists like Ginny Thomas and Amy Coney Barrett, either gives in or tries to maintain some of its authority by just officially sanctioning this kind of stuff. So to me, this is this was the real key, the, the, the scariest part of your article, because it points to a total meltdown of the system of checks and balances and separation of powers under the Constitution. Republicans in Congress are cowering in fear. The courts are powerless. And you have an unrestrained and insane executive. That's the picture that I see. L let me just let you dial it back. I mean, 
Do you do you want to go through those things in sequence, or or do you think that sort of the combination of them makes sense to to look at together? Well, they interlock, but I'll just mention them separately so that people get a sense of what we're talking about. Actually, you already did. So here's an incident. A guy named Berman just came out with a book in which he's the former U.S. attorney, chief prosecutor, U.S. prosecutor for the Southern District of New York, a hugely important place. He gets a phone call from Bill Barr's Justice Department, not from Barr, but he believes the order is coming from Barr. And he is ordered to prosecute a man named Jeffrey Craig, sorry, Gregory Craig, and to do this on political grounds. They prosecuted some Republicans. They need to go after a Democrat. Now, that is corrupt and unethical. Berman won't do it. He's eventually replaced. Another prosecutor in another district goes after Craig. Craig is acquitted because he's not guilty of anything. That's already happened. The reason a lot more of it did not happen under Trump's first term was resistance by the career prosecutors in the Justice Department and by honorable people there who said, no, we're not going to use federal prosecution as a political weapon to intimidate chill and frighten our enemies. Trump wants to do that. We know that because he did it and he wanted to do even more of it. And with the attorney general that he will now have and the tools that he'll have, that becomes much easier. So now the FBI becomes in Trump's second term what he claims it already is, which is a political enforcer for the White House. The second thing that happens, as you mentioned, is in the past, one of the big deterrents to going along with corruption like this is you could get in legal trouble. You could, if you were breaking the law in order to prosecute someone illegally, that's a crime. Trump has the pardon power. Again, toward the end of his first term, he weaponized the pardon power, pardoned Steve Bannon, Michael Flynn, other cronies who had been up to illegal stuff. He dangled pardons to keep people from cooperating as witnesses. Once again, that was a dry run. In the second term, he starts the term by dangling pardons and offering pardons and giving pardons so that it becomes difficult or impossible to prosecute his cronies. And he withholds pardons from people who don't cooperate, implicitly saying, you know, what happens to you if you don't go along with me? So the pardon power is in the Constitution. No one can do anything about it. it, creates a zone of impunity. All of the things we talked about until now, Matt and Paul, are things that he already did in the first term or tried to do. There's one bridge he didn't cross until recently after being president, and that's openly defying court orders. That's just ignoring the courts. That was a bridge he didn't cross. Maybe it was too controversial. Maybe it was the awesome power of the court. We don't know. But I can guarantee you that in his second term, when he runs out of appeals and stalling devices for the dozens and dozens of times that he will be sued for his illegal actions, he will simply ignore the court order. The Supreme Court says after a long battle, look, you have to reinstate the inspector general at the Justice Department or the Homeland Security Department that you illegally fired. He just locks the door, he says, well, you and what army? He can do that throughout the government. Once he does that, and once the Republican MAGA movement begins to apologize for it, excuse it, say the courts are illegitimate, they're politicized, they're weaponized, it's a deep state. After he does that about six times and the MAGA movement says it's fine, the country will get used to it. People will realize court orders are suggestions. 
But this president is not bound by them. Once that happens, that's the end of the rule of law as we know it. And yeah, as you say, what does the Supreme Court do in that situation? Well, it could issue thunderous pronouncements that get ignored. I think more likely it's intimidated. It begins pulling back from challenging or defying the president, knowing that he'll simply shrug his shoulders and reduce their authority. So I think by the end of four years of a Trump second term, when you add all of these things together, you've got a recipe for basically a quietly authoritarian government. American life doesn't look very different day to day. You know, we're still shopping, we're still working, whatever. But it's not a rule of law democracy at that point. I just, I, I want to follow up on that last piece because it's so important and it's so chilling and you lay it out so well. And I want to avail our listeners and viewers of the fact that we have you, John, as a true expert in these issues. And we have former Congressman Hodes, who was both a law enforcement officer as an assistant attorney general in New Hampshire and a member of the U.S. Congress. And what we're talking about here is separation of powers, checks and balances in our system. We have three branches of government and we have the judiciary and the legislative that restrain the executive. And John, what you just laid out is the potential for the executive to just thumb its nose at and ignore any restraint from either of those other two co-equal branches. And so I guess I, I just want to push both of you, if you'd like to both weigh in on that last point. Is it truly possible for a President Trump to simply ignore the dictates of the Congress and the judiciary branch and just act with impunity. Who do you want to go first? Okay, I volunteer. I'm very eager to hear what Paul has to say. If he chooses to ignore what Congress tells him to do and chooses to ignore court orders, ordering him to follow the law, Congress is essentially helpless except for one mechanism, and you guys know what that is. It's impeachment and removal. Here's something else that happened during his first term. He was impeached twice, and he triumphed. From his point of view, despite that, he's reelected. He's not worried about impeachment anymore. He knows that Republicans will protect him no matter what they do, because they're already so deeply complicit in his actions. And that's it. There's nothing anyone can do at that point to remove him or to limit his power short of him deciding it's impolitic for him to go too far on any given day. That's what we're down to. But I don't know, Paul, what do you think? Is this realistic? Well, yeah, because it's part it's a it's a multifaceted approach to fascism. And the multifaceted approach that Trump has tried to employ and would employ is first of all making sure that his judicial appointments are all toadies and hacks. We've already seen what that meant with the judge down in Mar-a-Lago with her incredibly badly reasoned decision impeding our national security. You can see that he stacked the Supreme Court with political hacks and toadies. We've already seen that happen. Congress is a very slow-moving and a slow-moving body in, in, in the best of circumstances. As John has said, there are very few enforcement mechanisms. So if Congress wants to complain, they could complain to the DOJ. But wait, the DOJ is now stacked with political toadies, so nothing's going to happen there. But wait, will appeals 
up to the courts. But wait, those those guys are all political hacks and toadies. So we'll go to the Supreme Court. Oops, can't go there. So that's one whole facet of getting the American people kind of like under the thumb of us of an entire judiciary that is compromised by political hacks. So ignoring the dictates of Congress or ignoring the orders um, means a laborious and ultimately unsuccessful process of appealing to Trump loyalists who will simply cast reason and precedent aside in order to do whatever the autocrat wants them to do. Can I just differ with one aspect of that analysis? Because I think in a way it's scarier than that. I have a lot of respect for the courts, including his nominees to the courts. They've been quite good, I think. They've been people of integrity. They're conservative in their point of view. And I have a lot of time for Justice Gorsuch and his other appointees. I think it's worse than that. I think that it doesn't matter in Trump's second term whether the courts have integrity or not, because he'll decide on his own whether to follow the courts. And that's a worse situation. And I say that, this I, I didn't have space. For, actually, this came up after my article. I, I wish I'd been able to put it in. How do we know that Trump will justify court orders? Well, that's what Mar-a-Lago is about. Mm. A, a, he got a subpoena from a federal grand jury to turn over classified documents that he was improperly holding. Now, a grand jury subpoena, Paul, you can confirm this. It's a court order, right? That is a court right. saying, do X. Did he do it? Nope. Instead, he sent out a lawyer who lied about it and said, we've turned him over. Well, that wasn't true. Attempts at negotiating failed. FBI winds up having to go issue a search warrant because Trump is defying a court order. Well, I can guarantee you in Trump's second term, this, the FBI won't be pestering him. He'll just be defying the court orders. Mm. And of course, there's a dark joke circulating in Republican circles right now that MAGA stands for make attorneys, get attorneys. And you can see how those last <laughs> three of your buckets of kind of the doom loop do interlock. As you say, they work together. Because if you think about the Mar-a-Lago situation, he's defying a court order. He sends out attorneys to lie, knowingly lie. So now they're in legal peril, except they're not. Because as you say, if you imagine this whole scenario unfolding two years from now under a Trump second term, there would be no investigation, there would be no court order, and any attorney who got in trouble would get pardoned. It's the whole thing is, it's sort of mind bending when you think about it. Yes, the pieces, so, the pieces fit together, they are in place, and we know what they are. Sorry, Paul. So you know, that's okay. I mean, what it what it brings up for me is, look, we, we have a system theoretically of checks and balances. And one of the checks and balances for bad behavior has traditionally, we think, has been the media. And at the very end of your article, you bring in this discussion of, of a critical set of the two factors. One is the fourth estate, the press. And, and on our show, John, we just discussed with former Chicago Sun-Times editor Mark Jacob in our last episode, talking about the either silence or complicity or ignorance of the press. I, and I think we've established pretty convincingly that we are dominated these days by right-wing media with a very few credible, prestigious media organizations, such as The Atlantic as an outlier, who are not afraid 
to talk about the threat of the rise of fascism. It seems like the press has been cowed, does not understand the full impact and threat that Trump and his ilk and his cult and his followers are to the very foundations of what we call our democracy. And well, on this why. point, so this is a point on, on which we do disagree. Now, I'll sound defensive because I'm a member of the Fifth Estate. I'm a, a journalist by training and, and identity. I have never been as proud to be a journalist as in the Trump era, despite every effort to intimidate and kneecap journalists, call them enemies of the state, physically intimidate them at rallies, despite everything he has thrown at them for four years of his administration. We heard 90, 95% of the wrongdoing he was doing from the media long before it surfaced in official government reports. The press, I think, and the courts were the two institutions that really held their ground and kept the country together over those four years. So I am, I am proud of the record that media has played. And I worry that a second term, he would find ways, as, as Viktor Orban did, to begin to really intimidate media. What I worry about, though, and I, t I take your point, John, that it is demonstrably true that the courts have held the country together. And I do. I also take your point about the media. What I worry about is that the same let's skate to where the puck is going process that you undertake in your article can apply to the media here. And so you see respected journalists like John Harwood coincidentally say, hey, the president has a point. President Biden, when he says that the rise of MAGA Republicans and semi-fascists is a threat to America, and within hours it's announced he's no longer with a network. Now, the sequence of what preceded what, I guess, is in question there. But you see this very explicit move by a media outlet like CNN to move to what they call the center, or you could call the right. And you do see a dominance, despite the popular impression that's been fueled by Republican for lack of a better word, propaganda for years, that there is a liberal media bias, you actually see in the, in the statistics and the data a, a real dominance across radio and television and online and on social media by right-wing producers of content. And so I guess what I worry about is not so much the work of, of you and your colleagues but a sort of a self-censorship and adaptation for business reasons, like you're seeing at CNN, where they sort of decide to accept a new reality. That, that's my concern. Do you, do you see that as a possibility? It's not high on my list. You know, I'm so much more worried about what the Trump administration could use government power to do. Mm. And then secondarily, I'm worried about the emergence of an alternative reality in right-wing media which is effectively acting as a propaganda arm of MAGA in the White House. You know, if you look at the stuff we've been seeing from Fox News, from Tucker Carlson, from Dinesh D'Souza and so forth, you've got an entire media establishment, which is putting out an alternative reality that millions of, of Americans are in. I, I'm going to put all of that way ahead, ahead of worrying about the specifics mm. of who's in and who's out at CNN. And I will say, I think to me, the most important thing that the media needs to do and they continue to do is good old fashioned shoe leather reporting, finding out what's going on and tell us about it. And, and that's the thing that we need to be very watchful of. Then let me bring in, as we reach the tail end of the show, the one other aspect that I think Paul was alluding to, because there were, there were two things that you note toward the end of your article that are functions of a, a healthy American democracy. And one of them is the media. 
very important. The other is elections. We have a system of free and fair elections, we think, we hope, that are meant to be the ultimate arbiter of who holds power. And one thing that you, I'm sure, didn't have the space and time to expand on in your article, but I'd like to give you a, a chance to now, is the Republican approach to trying to leverage more power in elections. Do you think American elections can continue to function as a restraint on Trump in, in a potential Trump second term? Do you think that he would truly face the music two years later from voters? Or is that function of American democracy being fatally undermined as well? It's in between. It's endangered. It's not fatally undermined. But, but here we have to go back to where we started our conversation, which is Hungary. There are opposition parties in Hungary, but they're not effective. They're highly fragmented. The government has been very effective at using its command of the news media and of resources uh, to drive wedges through the opposition. It's also found a lot of ways administratively to disadvantage the opposition, not depriving them of the ability to have free and fair elections. Hungary still has elections, but it has changed the shape of the playing field to advantage itself and make it harder for the opposition to gain power. I think that's the model we're looking at in the US. We will still have elections. They'll be mostly free and fair, but you'll also see things like what folks are worried about in Arizona if MAGA takes control of the governorship, the secretary of state, um, the attorney general and the legislature as now looks quite possible. We could see moves by the legislature to require hand counting of all ballots, which would almost paralyze the election system because there's millions of them. They want to criminalize errors made by ordinary election workers. So you go to jail if you make a mistake. Well, that's a way to deter people from volunteering, if they're honest, to do election work. And it's a way of endangering and legally jeopardizing the people who supervise elections. So now you're worried about who's the attorney general when this election is happening, that's not something you had to worry about in the past. And plus, we might be talking about laws that essentially out and out empower legislatures to change the rules of who goes to the Electoral College. We don't know yet, but we know that there's all kinds of devices that can be used to try to tilt the playing field, to intimidate honest election officials. And that's what we see in a Trump second term to the extent they have power to do it. Does it mean elections stop being free? Democrats don't get elected where a one party state? No. Does it mean that they manage to entrench themselves, MAGA, in a lot of places where otherwise, just on the Democratic votes and merits, they would not have been able to? Yeah, it probably does mean that. The article in The Atlantic is called Trump's second term would look like this. And it truly is very chilling. I'm sorry that it's such a bummer, but we are really delighted to have you. John Roush, thanks again so much. Thanks for having me.